जय श्री राम नमस्ते एंड वेलकम एवरीवन टू दिस स्पेशल इंडिक चैट स्पेशल बिकॉज इट कोइंसाइड्स विद द बर्थ एनिवर्सरी ऑफ मॉडर्न इंडियाज मोस्ट फेमस एंड इन्फ्लुएंशियल पॉलिटिकल लीडर मोहनदास करमचंद गांधी प्योरली ऑन अकाउंट ऑफ हिज फार रीचिंग इन्फ्लुएंस ऑन इंडिपेंडेंट इंडिया ही कंटिन्यूज टू बी डिस्कस्ड डिबेटेड एनालाइज वेनरेटेड एंड इवन अब्यूज while people have genuine love and legitimate grievances with gandhi it is safe to say that what goes around especially on the social media as opinion on gandhi is simply ignorance in disguise because other than a select few not many people are exposed well enough to his thoughts and work uh one of the most interesting accounts of gandhi's posthumous influence on india that i have read is a book called the death and afterlife of mahatma gandhi written by professor makaran paranjpe makaran makaran ji is a critic a poet a novelist a well known public intellectual and he teaches english he is a professor of english at the jawaharlal nehru university uh makaran ji was always a sought after scholar but after the 2004 2015 controversy in jnu uh, which i'm sure all of us are aware of uh he has attained a good amount of fame outside the confines of the academia so to speak uh and we are honored to have him as our guest for today's chat other than him we have six other participants on the panel and i will uh i'll introduce them briefly uh and it this is in no specific order uh, we have uh, professor ramesh rao associate chair and professor of communication at the columbus state university uh, we have Sumedha Verma Odha historian and columnist specializing in ancient India and ethics and she's also the author of Purnavi now we have Jay Jina third generation non resident indian change management consultant and teacher uh, there is Ramesh Kumar Burawali founder of iInnovate crowdsourcing and several it consulting companies he is a firm believer in dharma rakshati rakshita Then we have Manushi Sinha, uh, author of three collaborative books and four novels. The latest of them being *The Blue Vacation* on Lord Krishna. Uh, he's a freelance editor of *Business Sphere* print magazine and founder of MyIndiaMyBlog.com. Last but not the least, we have Shruti Bakshi, who is the founder of the Living Life Project and the author of *From Dior to Dharma*, an account of her personal spiritual journey and her personal growth. Uh, we have other participants on this chat as well but uh, uh, these are the six uh, who have the who have the sort of so to speak the privilege to ask the first questions and once we are through with the session uh, if we have time uh, we would invite the others who are participating in this call to ask makaranji uh, their questions and in case we run out of time uh, you can always mail them to us and we will make sure that your questions reach makaranji uh my name is ashish i am the moderator for today's session i am the co-founder of pragyata and a generally curious person who loves moderating <laughs> online chats and uh, so before we proceed with the chat and throw it open for questions by other panelists let me extract my pound of flesh for moderating this chat and grab the privilege of asking makaran ji the first question so welcome makaran ji first of all thank you so much so uh my question is that you've written an entire book on gandhi which i just mentioned and uh, 
would you tell us something about his contribution to the evolution of india into the modern nation of today of 21st century in other words what i'm trying to ask is if india had gained independence in 1947 without gandhi's uh, active involvement and contribution in the freedom struggle how different do you think india of today would have been well that's not what my book was about but i'll try to answer your question nevertheless you know what gandhi ji does is he foregrounds uh, dharma in the entire freedom struggle of india if you read hind swaraj 1909 the first thing he says in hind swaraj that india is not supposed to follow other nations and uh, try to win its freedom through violence uh, for him violence and non-violence became one uh you might see a set of opposing methodologies to win freedom but the other one was uh truth satya but the package was dharma so the basic thing he was trying to do is that uh, india is a dharmic nation and therefore the way to attain freedom has to be dharmic and not merely what may be called expedient or pragmatic or even uh uh you know whatever works type of uh methodology but uh, he he felt that we should uh, win freedom by the means that we have perfected in india which were dharmic means you may call them spiritual means or you may say that these were means which were suitable to our own civilizational genius and i think that uh, even if we disagree with him i think that foregrounding dharma for grounding truth for grounding nonviolence for grounding the purity of means and also for grounding deeper questions about uh, what was india's freedom for and what were the ultimate aims of human life for which india was going to be free i think these questions uh, became really important and of course then the other thing he did is that you can defeat a colonial power uh you know without involving masses of people this has happened elsewhere in the world and uh, it might have been possible even in india but what gandhi ji did is he brought in large sections of indian society especially those who were not used to fighting against oppression and authority because they themselves were oppressed so i'm i'm talking about uh, the lower classes the lower orders of society also women who were in the confines of house of the home in the house so he made it a mass uprising and that is what makes i think india different that we were trained to resist authority and oppression and the whole nation or large sections of the nation got involved in the struggle and that's why i think that our independence is a little more enduring whereas many other post colonial societies have slipped into uh, anarchy chaos and possibly even more oppressive regimes uh, and this is ha- hasn't happened in india because a long history of struggle um, with this foregrounding as i said of questions of virtue uh, what was good what was ethical i think this is what makes india different thank you makaram ji uh, uh sumedha ji would you like to go next 
I'm sorry, I can't hear you, Sumedha ji. I think your microphone is muted. Can yes. you hear me now? Yes, okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. No, again, it's, it's gone again. I, I no. request you to repeat. Now, now it's now it's all right. Now it's okay. Is it okay now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you said that women joined the freedom struggle in great numbers and came out from the hearth and the home. That leads to the very intriguing question of Gandhi's attitudes and relationships with women, which were famously unconventional. If you read my experiments with truth, sometimes it's shocking. But I want to ask, was he really a person who uh, thought in terms of uh, equality or a person who thought in terms of dominance? He dominated his wife. He dominated his women disciples. And was it that he wanted everyone to behave in the way that he thought was best? And did he really think of women as partners or maybe something else? Uh, well, I would uh, tend to agree with what you said, that he wanted everyone to behave the way in which uh, he felt they should. But of course, he didn't succeed. And uh, the point is that uh, I don't think he wished to dominate people. He wished to persuade people. And he sometimes brought very unconventional pressure on people in order to influence them, including fasting. But uh, his, uh, the, what you call shocking, not much of it you see in uh, uh, my experiments with truth, the story of my experiments with truth, which is a book written in the 1920s or a little bit around that time. That was actually his South African, uh, most of it is his South African period. And the only so-called shocking thing is when he almost asked Bar to leave the house because she doesn't want to clean a guest's toilet. And the guest is a next. Uh, so to speak, uncomfortable, he's a Christian convert. No, I think Gandhi's relationships with uh, many of his women uh, followers, I agree, were very unconventional, but they were also uh, much more equal than, than we can even imagine. I mean, many of them reprimanded him, made fun of him. For example, Sarojini Naidu, who called him you know, Mickey Mouse and, uh, uh, you know, uh, an ugly old man and so on. And, uh, uh, you see, Gandhiji, though uh, he had his views, which were, you might even call them uh, rigid, he was actually very tolerant of uh, people who disagreed with him. For example, among his uh, followers were people who smoked. But uh, it's not as if he cut them off. Uh, there were a lot of people who ate meat, who did not wear khadi. I mean, among smokers, not only Jawaharlal Nehru was a smoker, but uh, Molana Azad used to smoke. And, uh, uh, you know, a number of such people, they were, they were not Gandhians in the regular sense of the word. But he never asked them to, for his sake, you know, do those things. And even with Nehru, he, he said, if you disagree with me, if you, dis if you disagree with my view of Swaraj, let's debate in the open. And it was, it was Jawaharlal who actually withdrew. He didn't want the disagreements to come out into the open. So likewise, I think that uh, uh, his relationship with many of these women uh, who worked so hard for the freedom struggle were actually based on affection, 
warmth. He was a very attractive man, not in terms of his physical appearance necessarily, but in terms of his personality. He was warm. There was an aura around him. And everyone wanted to be in that ambiance. And he had a great sense of humor. He was able to make fun of himself. So I think it's a kind of feminist uh, ploy, if not plot, to see himself in, in that rigidly oppressive way, which he, I don't think, was. But I do believe that uh, he had conventional views of the roles, gender roles. I mean, he did, he said women should be queens of the home and the household and respected and so forth. But uh, I don't think that he said they shouldn't go out and work. Not at all. But, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to make is you asked another very important question. Did he believe in equality? Now, equality is a very Western concept because it means everybody should be leveled or do the same. But I think Gandhiji believed in justice with difference, you know, and, and a variety of aspirations. So, uh, so I don't think he was a feminist in the Western sense of the word. But I think he had great respect for women and he, uh, you know, had, he also had uh, some people castigate him for deifying women because he said women could do satyagraha more than men. Why? Because according to him, it is women who were peacekeepers in the home, who were able to sacrifice the, their own interests for those of others. And so he said that uh, for men to learn satyagraha was harder, but for women, it came naturally. Now, times have changed and obviously some of those remarks are possibly to be, uh, you know, um, you might say modified. And that is another very important thing. I think Ashishji pointed that out, that when we try to understand Gandhiji, we should locate him in his own times. And uh, I think that this is the mistake that many uh, rural, uh, you know, rabid uh, and, in, you know, I would say, uh, sort of sometimes motivated critics of Gandhiji. Some call him racist, the, you know, stretcher bearer of empire and this and that. I think this is all a back projection of current notions. But uh, I think Gandhiji had an, an enormous respect uh, for women. He never treated them as inferiors or in, some, in any ways, uh, in, you know, uh, should I say, required to take a secondary position. And his respect extended to empathy. He wanted, he, he was so aware and he himself said he was androgynous. So he, he was so aware of issues of privacy, you know, of toilet facilities. Now we're talking about Swachh Bharat. He was obsessed with, uh, with notions of that sort, which was way before their time, how uh, you know, because of modesty, women had to go through so much inconvenience. So he was, and you know, menstruation, things of that sort. So he was far ahead of his times uh, from those points of view and a, and, a, and a true friend and supporter of women. Thank you. Hi, Makaranji. I'd like to touch a little bit on what you said right at the beginning, which was about dharma. And, um, you know, to understand a little bit about how it relates to modern India, especially sort of the difference between dharma and secularism. Um, and I read somewhere that she said that um, secularism in India has become a kind of communalism. Uh, and you've also said that India has always been a dharmic rather than a secular country. Um, so can you elaborate what you mean by that statement that 
you know, secularism has become a kind of communalism. And also, um, you know, how do we understand the difference between dharma and secularism? Yes, you know, secularism was invented in Europe uh, because Europe wanted to get away from the dominance of the church. So they, create, they created a political system where uh, the church and the state were separated. And sometimes the separation was, was very rigid. There was a wall that separated the two, as in you know, civic nationalism like France. Now, in India, we just sort of borrowed that term without fully digesting or understanding it. I think that for Gandhiji, uh, the state had to e respect all uh, traditions, all religious uh, you know, of faiths, traditions equally and not play favorites. But in India, why did I call secularism a form of communalism? Because Indian secularism has been playing favorites and has actually engaged in appeasement politics. So it's not really equidistant or equally respectful of all traditions, but it's very divisive the way it's functioned in India. And that's why uh, critics of it have called it pseudo-secularism. Now, when you, when you go to, uh, to a dharmic framework, some of these problems with nomenclature do not arise because uh, you can't really uh, you know, say that we are uh, partially dharmic. You, know, you can either be dharmic or not dharmic. And, and basically being dharmic really means uh, to, to think deeply about what is right in a particular context and it is also context specific. So it doesn't work, you know, in an absolutist form. And then uh, you can be equally respectful of, of different traditions without playing one against the other and uh, without uh, playing favorites. So what I have argued is that secularism failed because it didn't fulfill its dharma which would have been equidistance, you see. And, uh, and in a way, uh, you know, dharma, you know, can also be pseudo-dharma if, you, if you're, uh, you know, going to favor, if the state is going to favor one community over the other. Uh, you know, we can fall into the same trap even if you substitute uh, secularism with dharma. But the basic point is that uh, the state should not be in the business of uh, you know, either interfering with or regulating what people want to believe in and what people want to cherish as, as uh, you know, their own, uh, you might call it, uh, you know, traditions of worship. So the state shouldn't do that. That's the whole point. And uh, that's where I think, uh, unlike Pakistan and uh, unlike uh, other people, even in India, uh, when we say we want to be a secular state, what we really mean that the state should not have an official religion. We're not a theological state. Now, how do you reconcile that with saying, oh, we are a Hindu Rashtra? What that means or that can mean to me is that, yeah, culturally, we are, you know, uh, we are a part of that Sanatani, which also includes Jain and Buddhist and other traditions. But it doesn't mean that uh, non-Hindus will become second-class citizens, for example. You know, so it's not a religious idea, it's a cultural idea. And I think this is what, uh, what uh, many people are actually saying. That, uh, but the final twist in the tale is after secularism fails, a lot of people are saying, you know what, it's Hinduism which is a better guarantee for pluralism 
than secularism, which is pseudo. But then, uh, you know, the same thing, you don't want to be a pseudo-Hindu. You don't want to be a pseudo-secularist, but you also don't want to be a pseudo-Hindu. So that's why I always talk about, uh, you know, how you need to mediate between these uh, polarities, both of which will weaken us and weaken our uh, great traditions of acceptance and pluralism, which is what makes India so different, as opposed to others which are so singular and are imposing. You know, I think that, uh, and I think that that's that's the answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you. So just to finish before somebody else comes in, you see, Gandhiji was a, he said he was a proud and Sanatani Hindu, but he said that doesn't mean that I don't like uh, people who are uh, Muslims or Parsis or Sikhs or Christians. He says, I, I, I have understood and practiced all these different faith traditions, but uh, I'm a Sanatani. Uh, uh, Ramesh, you can't hear you. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is Ramesh Rao here. And I think uh, uh, Shruti's question uh, and your response is a segue to mine uh, to kind of bring uh, Gandhiji hypothetically into our modern Indian political social context. And that is how might Gandhiji have perceived a, a man like Narendra Modi? Would their minds have met? Uh, or if not, you know, if we are using the kind of tropes that we have used, you know, Indian nationalism, secular nationalism, Hindu nationalism, Gandhian nationalism, uh, would there be that kind of divisions uh, in their own minds, in Gandhiji's mind, and how might he have looked at a powerful man now like Modi? And is there a way of those kinds of old binaries? Uh, they're not old binaries, they're still there. Um, and then what kind of collaboration might there have been between a Gandhiji and, and a Narendra Modi? See, I don't see them as polar opposites. I think it's a political maneuver to consider them as, uh, as incommensurable. I think both of them wanted a very strong India and a very open uh, and self-confident India. I think for me, uh, Narendra Modi's India is not an India of, uh, you might say, apologetics, appeasement, uh, oppression narratives, which are then compensated for through, uh, you know, state appeasement. But it's it's a confident rising India, and I think Gandhiji would have liked that. Uh, so now, of course, there are differences, and uh, one of the differences, as I see it, is that uh, uh, basically I think uh, Gandhiji uh, was not such a great, uh, uh, you might say, proponent of a, a particular model of economic development, you know, uh, which you might call neoliberal capitalism. He was more for cooperation, trusteeship, and so forth. But uh, uh, I think, again, uh, I don't think Gandhiji had any, uh, you might say, soft corner or any um, investment in poverty, not at all. So prosperity, to Gandhiji was, was also very important. But I think for Gandhiji, it was moral 
an ethical and spiritual self-development, which was really, really important. So the whole purpose of social organization or of society was for that. But uh, if, you really, if you read Gandhiji very carefully, you realize that he was so ahead of his time. And the, the, the India of his dreams, or even the human being's capacity to transform, was actually belied in his own lifetime. And that's why we have to see his last days, which is what my book is about. And from a kind of absolutism, when it came to nonviolence, he became conditionally nonviolent. In other words, he said, when the mercenaries, uh, you know, invaded Kashmir, uh, the British, uh, at that time, you know, head of the Indian army was a Britisher. He said, no, don't send the troops, there'll be a war. He told Nehru, send the troops, save Kashmir. And he wrote a piece about people who were defending, you know, women and children and killing these uh, invaders. He said they are nonviolent because they are defending others. So I think uh, he did not want to fetishize nonviolence to the point that uh, defenseless and weak people were killed by uh, totally unscrupulous. So, in fact, he said, my nonviolence has failed. He says people were not ready for it. They just used it as a convenience because they themselves were weak and cowardly. And now that the British have left, look at them. They're at each other's throats. So he said, instead, he said, look, uh, don't become vigilantes and take the law into your own hand. Because people were criticizing Sardar Patel. So he said, how, how can you criticize the Home Minister for maintaining law and order? So at least the state should maintain law and order. You don't start killing people. So you, you see from talking about Shanti Senas and resisting violence uh, through some spiritual means, finally Gandhiji said, we need an army, we need the police, and uh, you know the state will use violence. So I think his last uh, uh, you know, year or so, or eight months, uh, you know, were uh, quite bad, They're very difficult for him, because he found that uh, Indians, in fact, the world was not ready for the sort of nonviolence that he wanted. And therefore, I think that uh, uh, we would misunderstand Gandhiji if he fetishized nonviolence to the point of, uh, uh, you know, somebody, some people accuse him of killing off the Kshatriya spirit in India. Actually, Gandhi was a great fighter. And he, he thought, he believed, that nonviolence was the weapon of the brave, that it was a greater power than violence. Now, if you don't have that capacity, then you may as well be violent than be cowardly. This is exactly what he said. And, and uh, so, uh, when it came, when it comes to four or five things, like Swachhata Abhiyan, again, uh, uh, you know, Narendra Bhai has been inspired by Gandhiji. So I see a continuity, I don't see a break. And uh, I think that uh, this appropriation of Gandhi by one party or even by one family doesn't, um, I think, serve the interests of India. Gandhiji belongs to everyone. So nobody has a copyright. And no one can say if he were alive today, he would do this or that. How do we know? And, uh, and therefore, I, I think that when it comes to cleanliness, uh, strength, a dharmic uh, kind of nation, uh, and uh, prosperity, uh, justice for all, antodaya, sarvodaya, these are very Gandhian ideas. 
which uh, in a sense Dean Dayalupadhe also picked up. Uh, so I think there's so much similarity. And, uh, you know, the icing on the cake is how the Prime Minister has become the mascot for Khadi and the sales have increased. But of course, Khadi is now a subsidized uh, project by the government, it, uh, you know, and so it would not be Gandhiji's Khadi, which was meant to be for self-sufficiency. So these are the paradoxes. Uh, but uh, I, I, think, I think that if Gandhiji was a Yuga Purush of one sort, so is Narendra Modi. So trying to drive a wedge between them and create a false opposition is certainly not something I would uh, uh, support or appreciate. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. And it's no accident that when the Prime Minister assumed office, the first thing he did, he offered a, a floral tribute. He offered flowers to a small portrait of, uh, of Gandhiji in, his, in the PM's office. So when he... So that was a very important, for, for me, symbolic gesture because I don't remember any of the earlier prime ministers doing that, you know, when they assumed office. I don't remember Narsimha Rao or Manmohan Singh, uh, actually. But Narendra Modi made that continuity, you know, between uh, and the second, as it were, I mean, the, uh, you know, uh, the second Gujarati, uh, you know, uh, who assumed that high office, though, uh, in another century, in the 21st century. Yeah. I think you have another book project here. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. Thank you. Namaskar. Namaste. Namaste. Okay. Uh, I think my question is probably also a natural follow-on from Ramesh Ji's. Um, it is this. Gandhiji is a, a global historical figure and thus naturally he is important to Indians. But his philosophy and person continue to have many critics, and you've touched on those. Some even say that his exalted position in the political body of India has been at the cost of the great thinkers and doers, uh, his contemporaries of the 20th century and of the freedom struggle. So is it in the interests of Indians that he should be almost monotheistically celebrated as a deity, as he seems to be? And how must India's evolution uh, in acknowledging and celebrating her past and shaping her future, therefore evolve the narrative on Gandhi? Uh, yes, I, I, I think Gandhiji himself would hate his own deification. Uh, but I disagree with you that it's a monotheistic whatever. I think that's just lip service. In fact, I find that uh, nobody cares about Gandhi in India. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, all his, uh, uh, you know, pet constituencies have denounced him. You know, he worked so hard for the, you know, so-called Harijans, they hate him. He worked for women, they hate him. You know, the Congress people don't like him. There's nobody who likes him. So I don't see him as being monotheistically worshipped. In fact, it's just, as I said, uh, you know, uh, it's just uh, it's just a show. Uh, nobody reads them. Nobody understands them properly. Uh, so, in fact, I find him a very marginal figure. But I also agree. I, I also agree that uh, uh, you know certain political parties have tried to, uh, as you said, exalt him and then make him beyond criticism, which I don't think is is uh, is something that he himself would have liked. In fact, I feel that 
public figures or, or important uh, thinkers have to be seen at their limits. In other words, we have to see, uh, you know, we have to see what they try to accomplish and uh, we have to also acknowledge where they failed. And it seems to me that Gandhiji is great, not because of what he succeeded in doing, but because of his failures, which were so enormous. He wanted to, uh, you know, transform humanity. He failed. He wanted to transform uh, the nature of the state itself. He failed. He wanted a different kind of India, unpartitioned as well. He failed. Uh, and uh, so on and so forth. He, 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 he thought that the decolonization of India would usher in a global, uh, a new global order. He failed. So where did he succeed? I think he succeeded. He failed in most of the things. But does it mean that uh, the things he stood for are meaningless? No, they're deeply meaningful. And when you talk about deification, Look at, uh, you know, the other side. Look at the BJP. It keeps deifying its own figures. And, uh, you know, now we are celebrating, uh, uh, you know, Pandit Dindal Upadhyay's uh, centenaries and uh, complete works. But all, all the events are all glorification, you know. There's no critical engagement. So both sides have the same hagiographical approach. And this is what comes easily to us. We are very pietistic in India. You know, we like to exalt people. But that's, that's not going to serve us well. We can do that as well. I, I'm all for bhakti. But uh, I think yukti is very important too. You know, and uh, when you think about our texts and the robustness of classical Indian tradition, you know, we, we were, uh, you see, uh, the Tarkarishi was more important. It's not to just, you know, worship uh, everybody. No, I mean, look at Arjun, how much he debates with Krishna. So, and even after the Vishwarupa, where he's dazzled, he dazzled and gobsmacked or whatever you want to call it. Afterwards, he's back to arguing. So, and Gandhiji was a very argumentative person. People were always arguing with him, writing to him. And he was constantly fighting with people. And I think that's the approach we should have to some of these figures. Manushi, uh, would you like to go next? Yes. Namaste, Makaran sir. Namaste. 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 Um, the partition of uh, India into Hindustan and Pakistan in the year 1947 led to large scale genocide. Mahatma Gandhi was considered responsible for this. But the problem still persists with uh, soaring relations between the two countries, or to be precise, between two faiths. Your opinion on this, sir? That's what I'm saying, that uh, I think the partition of India was such a colossal tragedy. It's like uh, a, a modern time Mahabharat, where cousins, you know, kill each other, destroy each other. And they weaken India because imagine what would happen if uh, Pakistan or whatever, and I was going to say renounced its warlike intentions, but let's say Pakistan and India were at peace. This would be economically, even militarily, not to speak of in terms of population, you know, the most important area of the world. So now to blame Gandhiji for the partition of India makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, 
Uh, I don't see any evidence of it. In fact, he starts withdrawing. He withdraws from the Congress, uh, uh, you know, uh, the working committee where he was, he had such an important voice. The day there's a Pakistan resolution or partition resolution, he says, from now on, you manage. I have my work cut out. I'm going to stop the fighting between Hindus and Muslims. So I think Gandhiji started with the premise that Hindus and Muslims were one people. That there was absolutely, because they were culturally the same, he himself said most Muslims are converts from Hinduism. So why should they fight? So he started with his foundation was Hindu-Muslim brotherhood. Then later on, you know, when things got really bad, he said, okay, if you don't want brotherhood, at least have amity, have friendship. And then in his last days, when he saw the bloody riots, and as you said, you called it genocide, the exchange of populations, and uh, he said, okay, if you can't be brothers and if you can't be friends, at least learn to coexist. And I'm afraid even today we haven't found that formula. What is the formula for coexistence? We still haven't got that. We haven't got that covenant. So we need an agreement which both sides will honor. And there are things we can do about it, including stop converting, stop trying to dominate others, etc. When you renounce those things, you create uh, from hostility, you create a different atmosphere, right? So I think that the problem persists. And uh, we've, uh, we, you know, if you think that you can defeat or wipe out or uh, get rid of people who are not of your persuasion, that will never happen. And you know, Gandhiji said something, one, one thing which was so interesting. He said, okay, in Pakistan, they're driving all the Hindus out. You know what will happen next? They'll start fighting amongst themselves. And that's exactly what has happened. So... So religion as such is not a defining boundary for human beings, you know. So if you want to, people of different faiths can coexist. And people of the same faith can fight to death. Look at the Middle East, you know, there's a continuous fight between, you know, let's say Saudis and their proxies and Iran and their proxies and Shias and Sunnis. There's a continuous fight going on. So uh, my point is, how do you solve this problem? I think it's a very big issue. And in a way, I think of Gandhiji like Sri Krishna, who said, okay, give us five villages, give us, you know. So you go to the extreme of non-violence. But after that, you have to say, no, on these terms, we cannot coexist. So I think what we are seeing in India now has come about the Hindu assertion, has come about because despite trying the very best possible, you know, whatever you want to call it, going as far as possible, it's still not happening. Then people will say, like India is going to say, and has said to Pakistan, we're not going to tolerate whatever it is, cross-border terrorism, this, that, and all. So I think this is what's happening now. But let us say that you can, in some sense, uh, you know, gain the upper hand in this fight. By you, I mean, say, the Hindus or India gets the upper hand in this fight. But the problem cannot be solved. You still have to learn. You can't exterminate the others, right? You can't have India free of Muslims. It's impossible. So again, you come back to the same, same old, which is how do we live in peace? Whoever we are, whatever we believe in. So let's work out the terms of that uh, coexistence. 
So whatever you do, you come back to that issue. And this, this doesn't apply only to India or only to Hindus and Muslims. It applies to all people in all parts of the world. Everywhere people within a state, across states, across uh, you know, religious or ethnic divides, they've got a fight going on. And unless we learn as human beings to find ways, and the last point I want to make is what the Europeans did, like Kant and others. They said, okay, let's have an agreement. Let's have a contract. Yeah, That's the only way the strong will not exterminate the weak. Gandhiji said, no, contracts are not enough. You need a change of heart. And I think it's very good to think about somebody like Shwarabindo here, because in his ideal of human unity, he says, you need both. You need to change your consciousness because war happens in people's minds. And he says, war, it's a wonderful essay he wrote called War and Self-Determination. And Shurabindu says, war will continue until it is psychologically impossible. And I've th thought about this remark for maybe 30 years now. How is war going to be psychologically impossible? This was the question that Gandhi asked. War becomes psychologically impossible only when you have no intention to harm anybody else. That doesn't mean you won't fight, like Krishna asked Arjun to. That's a different issue. But war will continue until it becomes psychologically impossible. So what Shurabindo says is you need contractual agreements which are enforceable, which, where two parties agree, and there are penalties for breaking the agreement. But you also need the transformation of human consciousness. So this applies to all religious communities and all ethnic communities and all other identity-related disagreements and fights. And until we do both, I don't think this problem will be solved. And one, one last thing, I think the logic of partition has already been, uh, should I say, contravened or refuted by history. The logic of partition was the two-nation theory. The two-nation theory has been defeated by history because Bangladesh separated from Pakistan, though they were the same religion. And tomorrow, Baluchistan may separate. We don't know. So religion alone is not sufficient glue to keep people together. So once the two-nation theory doesn't exist, there's no reason why we cannot have a confederation. That can only happen when India is strong. Everybody wants to be with the winner. So when India becomes economically very powerful, very strong, whether it's Myanmar, whether it's Nepal, whether it's Sri Lanka, I think even the people of Pakistan will say, Chodo Yisab Jihadism, we want to be with India. We all want to prosper. So I think to that extent, what uh, the new narrative that's coming is excellent. Because when you're weak, even your own people want to divide and get away from you. When you're strong, when you're prosperous, everyone wants to join you. So India has to be a success story just as Pakistan is a failed state. Thank you, sir. Makranji, namaste. And Vande Matram to you. Vande Matram. Because my question is now about the RSS and its uh, uh, thought process on Akhand Bharat. Um, yes. And I have... Uh, often asked uh, the pracharaks that I've known for many, many years, if they shouldn't be satisfied in their own concept of a Hinduized Rashtra, 
whether it was in 1947 or today when we are about 85% the indic composition of the population shouldn't they be satisfied with a almost ferric um, hinduized rashtra that exists now rather than go back to a 65% composition it if if the partition had not happened so and then um, you had said there are no admirers at this point in time but i i think there is a lot of admiration in uh, a silent admiration for gandhi ji in rss uh, especially with narendra modi's advent uh, because he realized that the, the the potential power of the mass movement and what was bestowed as a child of the partition which is a hinduized rashtra so your comments please yes you see uh, what i want to say is that uh, first of all again there is a polarity in indian society and the moment you bring in rss all the secularity whatever we want to call them they start attacking and so forth and i think that's that's very sad because i think rss is today uh, the one organization that stands for hindu unity and so much so that when they saw how uh basically after the partition of india what was going to happen to the hindus i mean if you read all the documents they they in a way lost their faith even in the uh, you know in in uh, india as an independent nation to take care of hindu interests so they said look we have to do it on our own so if there's anybody who who's uh, working for hindu unity across all kinds of lines it is rss now when it comes to gandhi ji i think uh, not only in the rss but in the hindu right the entire spectrum uh, there are still people who dislike gandhi okay there are still people who want to exalt god save for killing gandhi and uh, so much so that some of the hindu mahasabha people wanted temples to god save and so forth you know so i think that gandhi is hard to digest when i say admire maybe i should have uh, tried to use a different term you see the thing about gandhi ji is that you can't slot him so anybody wants to appropriate him fails because ultimately you're invited to practice certain things in order to understand gandhi so for me what is non negotiable when it comes to understanding gandhi it's not non violence it's truth so i feel that anybody who respects truth can understand and appreciate gandhi because that's the only thing and sat and satya you see they are linked because one is ontological and the other is ethical satya becomes ethical as well okay and sat is both ontological and metaphysical so you know the foundation of whatever we see as our reality is based on sat and satya so i think that whoever wants to create uh, even if you want to call it the true dharma whatever it is a true india a true hinduism you have to go to satya if you if you if you try to get out of satya you'll only create pseudo this and pseudo that now coming to akhanda bharat see akhanda bharat does not need to be taken literally i mean everybody doesn't have to merge see in fact now you know you're from a state which was called andhra pradesh now it's become telangana and andhra pradesh does it mean that uh, you know it's uh, the telugu identity has been destroyed or split no states are only administrative units you know and tomorrow you may want uh, smaller states you may want west bengal like people want gorkha land to be a separate state and maybe administratively smaller states are even better 
they're, they're more decentralized. Who knows? So I'm not so keen on some kind of state unification, which will result in a lot of problems. You talked about the demographic problem. Also, around the time of partition, it was, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the balance of the communities was much different. You've already said, uh, some people are saying it's 50% now, you know. Uh, we don't know, but uh, uh, it would have been, in fact, some people have argued that the partition was a blessing in disguise. Because otherwise, no election could have been won. They would always have been the same splitting and vote banks and electoral alliances. And now, you know, even in Assam, we have a participant from there. You know, when it reached the tipping point with immigrants and the whole demographic, uh, you know, you might say violence to that state and its culture. Only then there was a Hindu unification. So imagine if 30% belong to another community. Look at what's happening in Kerala too. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise for some form of consolidation. But does it mean that Akhanda Bharat is a myth? No, it's a, it's a, it's a different idea. And maybe Sark has failed. Sark has failed because we have a spoiler. But look, now Afghanistan and India are getting close. So it's, it's really a matter of time when, when uh, Indian GDP rises, it's more prosperous. Everyone will want to trade with India, right? Even China would want to trade with India. And you don't have to go to the Gwadar port through Baluchistan, which is a disputed territory within quotes, or at least doesn't want, and through Azad Kashmir, which is 100% disputed, even according to UN. You may want to come through Myanmar to India to trade with India, right? So we don't need to create hostile neighbors or a hostile neighborhood. But uh, we have to, as I said, become strong, economically prosperous, and reach out to the people of Pakistan saying, look, uh, we are not your enemies. And, uh, you know, Akhanda Bharat therefore means uh, mutuality, tolerance for difference in each other's uh, uh, faith traditions and not, and not becoming more and more intolerant and fundamentalist or whatever you want to call it, fanatical, right? And if, if that happens, if there's a reversal of that, in certain countries, which has also been promoted, you know, all of this fundamentalism, etc., has been promoted. I mean, look at Pakistan, Ziaul Haq Islamized, you know, most of the institutions. So it has been done. So just the way it was done, it can be undone as well. And if that happens, Akhanda Bharat is a concept, it's a cultural idea, it's an intellectual idea, it's a civilizational idea. So the moment Pakistani says, you know what, we're not Arabs. Right? We are, we are Indians or we are Hindu Muslims, whatever. We are from this area. We have a geocultural identity. We belong to this ecology, this geography. The moment you say that, you already have a kind of Akhanda Bharat. And the moment the hostility ceases, the borders will no longer become barbed. And you have a form of Akhanda Bharat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So one more question from... Gandhi would have loved it. Gandhi would have loved that Akhanda Bharat. In fact, he, you know his plan after Kolkata, he came to Delhi and then he said he was going to walk to the border. He says, you created a border, I don't recognize it. If Hindus are being killed in Pakistan, I'm going to go there and fast. He never thought that, you know, 
uh, he could be stopped from walking across the border to Pakistan. But he was shot in Delhi. That's a different matter. So, uh, Makaranji, you spoke about uh, Gandhiji's failures. You know, he failed at so many things, yet he was sincere in trying. Yes. Uh, a good friend of mine says that reading Aurobindo's writings on Gandhiji is yes. uh, one of the great intellectual pleasures in life. And I strongly concur. It's really, really fun to read. Uh, now, I know that you've written a great deal about Sri Aurobindo as well. Uh, so how do you retain your sense of admiration for Gandhiji while being aware? I mean, because I personally find it very difficult to reconcile these two views because uh, Sri Aurobindo was already aware of the shortcomings that Gandhiji, Gandhiji's thoughts were putting on the, on the, on the, the, the strains that they were putting on the future of India. So how do you reconcile these two views and how do you still retain the kind of admiration that you have for Gandhiji? I think, see, this is, this is the whole point, that we can admire people who disagreed. I think this is the greatness of India. I mean, look at the Sharadarshanas. You know, they all disagree with each other, but we can admire both. You know, in some ways, people would say the Bauddhas and the Vedantins are, are uh, not reconcilable, but you can admire both. See, the thing is, I've done a lot of uh, study of this issue that you're talking about. If you look at Shorabindo's public pronouncements, there are very few. All, this, all these remarks, his criticism of Gandhiji, they were all private. You read, you read the complete works of Shorabindo, you type in Gandhi, and the remarks are not that many. But you go to what others recorded, Nirod Baran's evening talks, Ambalal Purani's record. Uh, but the basic thing was, I think Shorabindo said that please don't fetishize nonviolence. And he, 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 understood, he understood Islamism in a much more pragmatic way. It's not that Gandhiji did not understand, but he felt that you can transform it. It's not, so this is where I disagree with people who thought that he was a fool. He was not a fool. You know, he had worked with Muslims all his life. I mean, in South Africa, he worked for them and he found them to be peaceful. But of course, they were, they were not, there was no Pakistan movement then. The Pakistan movement started only in the 40s. And Iqbal died in 1940s. Only after 42, it gathered some force and momentum. You read what Nehru was saying. Nobody believed that Pakistan would happen. And suddenly it happens, almost suddenly, right? So basically, Gandhiji believed that you have to show generosity to an adversary to transform him. Now, Shurabindu said certain adversaries will not be transformed and you require the danda, you know. So, but if, do, do you mean to say that Shurabindu did not respect nonviolence? He did, but he was a revolutionary. He started as a revolutionary. He wanted to fight the British, you know, he, he, he was... Uh, the brain behind the uh, Anushilan Samiti, and though he was acquitted in the Alipur bomb trial, it was he who was uh, behind it, you know? So, uh, but then when he, he, he gave it up in Chandranagar in 1910, he had a vision and he felt India would not be free this way. So they are not at all irreconcilable. Of course, now you have Aurobindonians. The Aurobindonians, including some friends of mine, 
they can't stomach Gandhi. They just think of him as a hypocrite, you know. And uh, see, the moment you think of Gandhi as a hypocrite, then then the whole debate comes to an end. If you see him as a sincere person, then it becomes an interesting debate. But if you say he was just a fraud, then where is the debate? Some people will say Sri Aurobindo is a fraud. Where is the life divine? You know, uh, people will say that he, he misled so many people, saying that physical transformation would happen, people would become immortal. See, so what I'm trying to say is you can call anybody a fraud and dismiss them. People said Sri Ramakrishna is a fraud. There are books which have said Vivekananda is a fraud. So I don't think that's a strong argument. That's a very weak argument. But if you take the person at their best, you take the other person at their best and put them together. See, both, want, both felt that spiritual power or Atma Bal was higher than Bahu Bal, higher than Buddhi Bal. Both wanted India to be a Jagat Guru. Both wanted the transformation of India based on Indic civilizational values. You know, both were against British imperialism and were great, you know, fighters against it. Both believed in Bharat Shakti. Both believed that India is not just a piece of dead soil, but it has a great uh, uh, tradition, you know. And, and uh, in some ways, the Aurobindonians mis misunderstood Gandhi as a mere moralist. Gandhi was not just a moralist. You know, he really, and, and you know, in a sense, he tried to create a new religion like Din Ilahi, which failed, where everyone could come together and you could say Ishwar Allah, Tero Naam, etc. And some Muslims also joined it. But in the end, you know, it went back to the separate ways. He formed, he, he tried new ways of worship in Vardha. Uh, you know, he had a different service. His prayer meetings were all uh, religious prayer meetings. So he was a great experimenter. So I don't see them as being such polar opposites as, as some people argue, you know. And, uh, and therefore, um, yes, and the, you can criticize, uh, you know, both in, in, from different points of view. But for me, they're a part of this Indian renaissance, you know, where these amazing people come together. And overall, they're saying that, that India does not rise for herself, for her own selfish needs. But India rises to change all of humanity. And that rise of India, which, whose roots are in the Vedic times, is actually going to be seen in the future. Because modernity is self-annihilating. And only India has the wisdom to save us from self-destruction. I think both Sharabindu and Gandhi would agree that in the big picture. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, if we have some more time, uh, maybe you can take a couple of quick questions from the others who've joined. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the first question comes from, one second. Yeah. From Rasitaji. And she asks, uh, the Gandhian paradigm was based on the principle of Sarvodaya through Antyodaya. Today, each political party caters only to their own vote banks. Yeah, How yeah. would you define who falls under the Antyodaya category today? Exactly. No, it's not Sarvodaya through Antyodaya necessarily in that sense. But what Gandhiji said is that the so-called, you know, we talk about human development index, we talk about GDP, 
we talk about all these indices to measure growth, vikas, right? Gandhiji said the best way is to look at the most underprivileged, the most wretched person in society and see how he's faring in this dispensation. Then you'll get a picture. And he learned this from Ruskin. John Ruskin wrote a book called Unto This Last. And Gandhiji himself translated it into Gujarati, which is another point. He wanted everybody to go back to their own languages, etc. You know, he wasn't an Anglophile at all. Now, the question is that Gandhiji wanted village Swaraj. He wanted a decentralized governance model. But now we look to the government to do everything. What has happened? The citizens become disempowered because the government is taxing them to the hilt and then redistributing. And in the redistribution, the politicians, the officials, they themselves are corrupt. So in that sense, the Gandhian model is still very good. So, I mean, now people are saying to this government, abolish income tax. Why are they saying it? They're saying because you're already taxing everything. You've got GST, you've got this, you've got that. You've got excise, look at petrol, look at the prices in the international market and look at how much we're paying. So basically, Gandhiji wanted to put power and money back into the hands of the individuals, reduce the state and let people take care of their own problems, you know. And I've seen it. I've seen it in Gujarat. They don't wait for the government. I've seen it, I've seen it with Swadhyay. I've seen it with Swami Narayans. You know, there's a cyclone, there's a rain, something happens, all the streetlights are down. Yeah, they'll complain, but if the government doesn't do anything, they'll do it themselves. So I think that, uh, Rasita ji, this self-help model in which every Indian, every citizen is empowered and gets a sense of agency is the Gandhian model. So the last person in the system doesn't say, oh, what can I do? I can only wait for a handout. Instead, we have created a system of entitlements, you know, quotas, and we divide people. And this has happened partly because of the British with their census. And once the new, you know, you start enumerating people, then each one says, okay, you've got so much of the pie. I think obviously we need to change all of that. And I think that uh, to that extent, Swaraj and Sarvodaya are interlinked. And uh, you can't have Sarvodaya without Swaraj. So you don't have Swaraj because nobody feels empowered, you know, and uh, people don't feel that they can make a difference. They are always waiting for the government to be proactive and so on and so forth. But we should have, remember what the Prime Minister promised, maximum governance, minimum government. But it's not minimum government. Government is everywhere. Sometimes they're even telling you what to eat, what to wear. No. So, so what I'm trying to say is that Gandhian models are still very relevant and villages in India are in a sad state. Everybody is rushing to the cities. Gandhiji knew that our cities are going to burst at their seams. So when you talk about smart cities, what about a thousand smart villages? Why are we not talking about smart villages? Who wants to live in big uh, megapolises and maximum cities where you can't even breathe. But if you decentralize and make every village beautiful, you know, we would all want to go and live in a nice healthy place, get good food, air, have medical facilities, be inter interconnected. So to that extent, many things that Gandhi said 
are really, really relevant even today and including Sarvodaya Antodaya. But Sarvodaya Antodaya is not just opening accounts for everybody and putting in money directly. Of course, that's much better than having a leaky system and nothing getting back. But how about not taking and then giving? Imagine how much is spent in taking and then giving. You know, make sure that the wealth remains with the people and then the people can expend it the way they want and create systems and institutions. See, Tagore talks about it in Shodeshi Samaj. He says, you know, when you wanted to dig a tank in pre-modern India, when you wanted to create a school, you didn't go running to the king and say, please give us a grant. No, the villages got together. They, they dug the tank. They made the bund. They had a village school. People gave grain to the teacher. This was the Indian way. And this is what we have to reinvent, you know, with a strong defense and some other mechanisms which, which bring about stability. And then you unleash the potential of people. You know, Indians are so innovative. They're so creative. But right now, where is ease of doing business? You know, you talk to anybody, you want to come and open a business in India. You're not sure of how to go about it. So there's so much to be done. And that doing is actually undoing all this top-down, uh, statist, bureaucratic, governmentality that has been put into place, you know, by Nehru and his successors. That has to be dismantled. And that's Varaj and empowerment. Only then you'll get Sarvodaya and then Antodaya. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, so the last question uh, we have for today, uh, we have two questions, but we'll just take one and the other we'll pass on to you later. Uh, so this is, the, this is a question from Somdeep Ji. And yes. he said, I would love to hear your thoughts on Gandhiji's economics. Was Charkha too regressive? Was he incorrectly focusing on cottage industry and self-reliance instead of industry and trade? I think you partially answered it, but maybe you would like to elaborate on this specific point as well. Exactly. See, look, today we are talking about jobless growth, isn't it? What Gandhiji has to be put in his own times. You see, you can grow and grow and grow, but if the people have no work, you're going to create so much unrest in society. So you've got to manage your economics based on what you have in, you know, plenty. So Gandhiji wanted self-reliance. That's why Charkha. And Charkha is a symbol, just as, look at what the Buddha did. He says, Dharma Chakra Pravartana. Gandhiji brought the wheel back, you know. It's a dharmic wheel, this this charkha is a su chakra as opposed to the ku chakra of colonization. The charkha was a symbol. We shouldn't take it literally and fetishize it and make it, you know, a little deity. No. So similarly, of course, you have to get rid of some of his ideas. But I think a people first model of economics still is relevant, even if you want to make it high tech. So I think that, uh, um, and Gandhiji himself said he was not against technology. He was not against machinery. He admired the sewing machine, by the way. And he said, the human body is a machine. How can I be anti-machinery? But he said, I don't like machinery which displaces human beings, makes them obsolete or irrelevant. I think Gandhiji would have loved the mobile phone. How empowered everybody is because of it. 
You know, it's cheap. It's in everybody's hands. And people can do so many things. Look at the B map. It's an amazing empowerment of individuals. So I think to answer your question, you need a bit of this and you need a bit of that. You need, of course, you need industrialization. Of course, you need high-tech things. But if you're constantly going to do a kind of development model where people are jobless or underemployed and, uh, you know, don't have... Uh, and they feel, they start feeling useless, you know. They feel that, uh, you know, India doesn't belong to them. It only belongs to some rich people. Then what have you accomplished? Economics is for human beings. It's not that human beings are for economics. You have to really ask, what is expendable here? And for Gandhi, human capital was the greatest, not capital as we understand it. So how do you develop human capital and capacity? So charkha, handicrafts were all about that. I think we have to find out a modern way of developing human capacity, competence, and human capital, and then monetize that. Thank you. Thank you, Makaranji. Uh, it was a wonderful session, and uh, we had a. It was really instructive for me personally, and I'm sure uh, all the participants, everyone who joined, enjoyed it and learn from this. Uh, we will pass on whatever questions we receive. Uh, we've already received one question. We may receive more questions. We pass it on to you and we we'll request you to please uh, share your thoughts about those as well. Uh, okay. Before we end the session, I would like to thank uh, the Indic Academy, uh, the Indic Book Club, Swarajya Magazine, Creative India Magazine for making all this possible uh, for these weekly sessions of knowledge which are really really enjoyable and instructive uh, this one was really special for me and thank you so much and we'll hope to have you soon again for another session sometime thank, thank you, you Ashti, and thank you all it was wonderful uh, to talk to all of you thank you so much thank you makaranji and, and thanks Bande Matram again Bande Matram. Bande Matram.